Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. A dramatic spike in opioid overdoses is hitting cities across the metro area and even the entire state. This week, Minneapolis police said it responded to 65 drug overdoses, including one death in a nine-day period from late May into early June. That's an all-time high for overdoses in the city over such a short period of time. Most of the overdoses occurred in the area around the East Phillips neighborhood. In addition to the city of St. In addition, the city of St. Paul and Washington County both issued OD alerts this week. Both departments use the OD map tool. It allows police and sheriff's deputies to track opioid use trends and quickly react to spikes in overdoses. After years of trying, supporters of legislation to fight the opioid epidemic were finally successful in the 2019 session. Drug companies will pay millions to fund new programs. But one of the bill authors still isn't convinced it will be enough, especially after all of these recent overdoses. Police and eyewitnesses described the scene as chaotic. People passed out in the front yard of a South St. Paul home. Police and EMTs using Narcan to revive them so they could be transported to the hospital. All victims of what appear to be opioid overdoses. A problem that was the focus of a bill that passed the legislature last month. One of the Minnesota state senators who pushed hard for that opioid legislation was all too familiar with that scene that played out in South St. Paul. Her daughter died of an opioid overdose 12 years ago. I don't know if I'd exasperated is the right word, but I'm just frustrated that no matter how hard we work at this, it continues, that um, this crisis hasn't abated. Senator Chris Eaton of Brooklyn Center authored opioid bills for years in honor of her 23-year-old daughter, Ariel, who died in 2007. I'm hoping that, um, that we can at least start preventing some of the uh, addiction and some of the deaths. In the 2019 session, an opioid bill finally passed that imposes a fee on drug companies totaling $20 million per year to finance the opioid fight. It includes new guidelines for doctors who prescribe opioids, more funding to track overdoses and deaths, programs for addicts and their families, and creates a 19-member opioids advisory council. But after seeing episodes like in South St. Paul, Eaton is not optimistic. Is this bill going to make a difference? Are you confident of that? I'm confident we're going to try. I don't think it's enough money to really make a difference. I think it's enough money to make a dent. In 2017, the latest year's statistics are available, 422 people died of opioid overdoses in Minnesota, and more than 2,000 people ended up in emergency rooms. The new opioid funding begins to kick in after July 1st. This news comes as the director of National Drug Control Policy met with police chiefs, the U.S. attorney, and other officials to find ways to combat this growing epidemic. Coming up later in the program, I'll sit down with Jim Carroll, the drug czar, to discuss what the Trump administration is doing to fight the opioid epidemic. The former Minneapolis police officer who shot and killed an unarmed 911 caller nearly two years ago learned his punishment in court this week. I hereby commit you the Commissioner of Corrections for a period of 150 months. That is a 12-and-a-half-year prison sentence for Mohamed Noor. In April, a jury found Noor guilty in the 2017 shooting death of Justine Ruchek-Damond. 
nor apologized in court to Justine's family and everyone impacted by his actions. Minnesota is about to become the last state to require assisted living facilities to be licensed and more closely regulated. It comes after a growing number of stories of abuse of elderly residents, including many suffering from Alzheimer's. The videos from some assisted living centers are heartbreaking. He's attempting to get himself up after falling on the floor. How heart-wrenching is it to look at this? So sad and so traumatic as a family. The stories of neglect got the attention of state lawmakers. Her newspapers were piled up outside her door, and when I opened her door, I found her dead in her chair. These three women took part in an elder abuse conference in Brooklyn Center after traumatic experiences involving parents in assisted living. By day three of having a camera in, she was being physically, emotionally abused. Well, my dad's body was left for seven days in his room without a wellness check, even though they said if he didn't come for a meal, he would be checked on. On how we make these changes. How Governor Walls chose this conference to sign an elder care protection bill into law. I want to say thank you for making our state just a little bit better today with making this piece of legislation law of the land. The bill makes Minnesota the last state to require licenses for assisted living facilities, creates uniform standards of care, and allows families to install cameras in assisted living spaces. I actually put a camera in my mom's room. Senator Karen Housley has been pushing for this bill for two years and recently lost her mom to Alzheimer's. 99.99% of our, our caregivers are really, really good people and our facilities are great, but we needed to have a framework in place that if there was a bad person or a bad facility, they needed to be held accountable. Lawmakers and Governor Walls acknowledge these new protections are long overdue, but the work is not done yet. Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm will lead an effort to write the specific rules assisted living centers will have to follow. By August of 2021, assisted living centers will have to be licensed, much like nursing homes are today. The State Campaign Finance and Public Disclosure Board is ordering Congresswoman Ilhan Omar to pay a $500 fine for campaign finance violations. The board has also ordered Omar to repay her political campaign more than $3,400 in improperly used campaign money. According to the board's findings, Omar's campaign improperly paid for out-of-state travel and tax help when she was a state representative. In a statement, Omar says she's glad the board came to a resolution in this matter and that she will comply with the findings. Hundreds of activists delivered a message to the state capitol on Thursday to stop the Enbridge Line 3 oil pipeline project. They delivered a petition with more than 17,000 signatures to the office of Governor Tim Walls. They're pushing to get a sit-down meeting with him to voice their concerns. Earlier this week, the state court of appeals ruled an environmental assessment on the line did not adequately factor in the impact of a potential spill in the Lake Superior watershed district. Coming up next, we'll be joined in studio by the White House Director of National Drug Control Policy, how Jim Carroll is leading the federal fight as the drugs are to curb the nationwide opioid epidemic.
Like the rest of the nation, Minnesota is in the midst of an opioid crisis. Earlier, we told you about the opioid legislation that passed last month that aims to help curb the epidemic here in Minnesota by having drug companies pay for prevention programs. But the question remains, will that be enough to really put a dent in the problem? And what else can be done by states and the federal government? Today, we are joined by Jim Carroll, who serves as the director of National Drug Control Policy in the President Trump administration. And uh, thank you for joining us. Your position, uh, Mr. Carroll, is often referred to as the drug czar. I, I, do you like that title? Or is, is, is that, does that fit what you do? Well, I think it encompasses part of what I do. And Tom, thank you for having me on this morning. My mission is to make sure that we're saving American lives. And I'll take any title that you want to give me as long as that people understand that's our goal. And I know your office was created back in 1988. And I'm, right. I'm guessing it was in response to the crack cocaine epidemic that was, uh, I know, really peaking at about that time. Uh, but now it's taken on a much broader Role. It really has. And what we're seeing are people addicted to different substances these days. And so what we have to do is make sure that we're addressing everything. And we can't just limit it to one drug. Opioid epidemic um, is clearly facing the nation right now. It's what's killing so many Americans. But we have to remember there are other drugs that are out there, Tom, that are really impacting lives. And so we're going after all of them. And, and I know that you have seen uh, somewhat of an alarming increase in the use again of cocaine. It had been on the decline for a number of years, and now you're seeing that go back up as well. How big of a concern is that? It's a big concern. We're seeing actually the deaths from cocaine take a dramatic uptick, and that's very concerning. What happened was a few years ago, the U.S. stopped working with the government of Colombia to stop the production of cocaine. 93% of all the cocaine in the U.S. that's tested comes from Colombia. I've been down there. I've met with the president of Colombia. I do think he's going to try hard um, to reverse the trend of what's happening and make sure that less and less of that drug is hitting our shores. Now, back to the opioid crisis, because that really is what is in the headlines uh, every day. Nearly 50,000 people uh, died of opioid overdoses in 2017. That's the latest year, right. as you know, that statistics are available. More than half of those were from synthetic opioids like fentanyl, and those deaths are up over 400 percent since 2014. We're looking at some stats here right. nationally of West Virginia being number one, followed by Ohio and District of Columbia. Why are we seeing such a spike? Tom, what we're seeing are these synthetic drugs that are killing us are coming originally from China, and they're either coming directly to the United States through the mail and through other means, or it's going to Mexico and then coming across the southwest border. The U.S. Postal Inspector Services, our men and women of Customs and Border Protection, are doing a great job of trying to interdict these drugs before they're coming in. But the fentanyl originates in China and other parts of Asia, and it's coming here. And we have to get serious about this. President Trump is committed to saving lives. I'm making sure we're going to follow through on that. You, you, Tom, you mentioned the number of Americans who are dying. And you're absolutely right. It's about 50,000 from opioids, 70,000 overall. The early indicators, and it's too preliminary um, to take it um, as gospel, but are beginning to show actually that the death rates are going down. We have some hope that some of the work that we're doing in this administration is beginning to pay off, and we just have to continue. Let's uh, bring it back here to the Midwest and take a look at some of the statistics. We saw that some of the national statistics, the top three uh, locations, 
for opioid overdose death rates. And you can see Wisconsin actually has about double the rate uh, of Minnesota. Both uh, have major problems, and then Iowa and followed by the Dakotas. Now, it is amazing to me that those numbers really pale in comparison to the what's happening nationally. Only Wisconsin, among all those Midwestern states, is slightly above the national average, but it shows you how big of a problem this is, because we had 422 deaths in 2017 alone just here in Minnesota. I know, and it's really something, this epidemic is going not only in urban centers, but it's going through rural America, and so we're tackling it. We're working with the Department of Agriculture. We're, we have a rural resource guide. We're making sure that communities understand how it's going throughout the country, and so we're working hard to make sure that every community minimizes the impact. Now, what amazes me is that somebody as uh, high profile as Prince uh, died here in Minnesota two years ago right. from a fentanyl overdose, uh, which of course is a synthetic opioid, yet still people, even though they hear that news, you, you have to live under a rock not to know what right. happened to Prince, people continue to use those drugs, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. Exactly, sometimes unknowingly. For those people that know it usingly, that shows how desperate they are in their addiction, how strong it is. And these traffickers are preying on them. They're looking to make a buck off people that have an addiction. Then there's also the people that maybe go to a party and they think they're taking a pill and they don't realize that it's not Xanax or something else. They, they think it is, but it turns out it's fentanyl. We're seeing more and more people die that way completely, you know, for the first time they've ever done anything. Now, we still don't know exactly what happened in South St. Paul in the past week, but we had, uh, you know, video of people passed out on a front lawn, EMTs using naloxone and whatnot to revive these people. We're still not sure exactly what drugs they were taking, but that type of scene is playing out day after day. Even during the course of this interview, I'm guessing there are people dying of opioid overdoses. During the course of this seven or eight minute interview, uh, how big of a problem is this on a daily basis? Sadly, it's about a major airliner going down. Almost 200 people a day nationwide die from their addiction, die of an overdose. What we have to do, you mentioned naloxone, I'm so glad you did, is make sure more people have it. Under this president, we've been working hard to get naloxone more available. And in the last two years, we have naloxone prescriptions up 484%. So we're making sure that more people carry it. We can save their life and then have an opportunity to get them into treatment. Now, in January, you released the National Drug Control Strategy uh, that has a number of strategies, uh, everything from how doctors prescribe opioids, which is often the gateway to people then going on to heroin and, and other things. There was some criticism of this that there wasn't enough, uh, there weren't enough ways to, to objectively quantify how the programs are working. Is that being addressed? Oh, absolutely. It was all part of the way that we released this. You release the strategy first. And it's, I've said in the strategy, my number one goal is to save lives. That has to be the most objective metric at all. And then, as planned, we released the second part of that, which sets forth the objective data, which you can do to look at to see how we're going against the target. We have to have metrics. We've got them. That was the plan all along. Sadly, sometimes politics come into play in D.C. Now, I know the Trump administration is spending billions of dollars uh, on this, and in Minnesota we just passed opioid legislation that's going to provide $20 million a year, but even one of the authors of that bill, who lost a daughter to an right. opioid overdose, isn't convinced it's going to be enough, that you can keep throwing money at this, but it never seems to be enough. Is the problem money, or is it policies 
like making doctors more aware of not over prescribing? We can't point to one thing because I can't focus on just one thing. This issue is so complex. Right now, the president's budget is $35 billion for this, the most amount of money ever spent on this addiction. That doesn't count an additional $6 billion that he pushed for and signed the legislation a few months ago. So we have $40 billion. You're asking, is it enough? Probably not. But we're working with Congress to get more money available. We have more money going into treatment, more money going into prevention, and more money going into law enforcement than ever before. And we also, but we also have to reduce, and I think we're making good headway, Tom, on reducing the stigma of addiction so people are willing to come forward and say, I need help. And finally, I know in Minnesota they're, they're going to make it mandatory that doctors uh, participate in the prescription drug monitoring programs. Uh, up till now, it's been voluntary. Right. How important is that? Have you seen that work nationally? We have. Right now, sadly, there's not a national program. My hat's off to you and to the other folks in Minnesota who are pushing the statewide. We're now pushing to make it national because that way doctors can check to make sure they're giving it to person who rightfully needs it. We're going to make sure the people who have pain still get access to medication, but we want to make sure that we're not just feeding someone you know, who is really in a desperate situation. And that they're not doctor shopping and going around exactly. getting drugs from other uh, people. Well, uh, Mr. Carroll, thank you so much for being here. I know you've got a lot of work. You met with the U.S. attorney, the police chiefs in Minneapolis and St. Paul. You're consulting with people all across the country trying to get a handle on this. All across here. You have a great state, and the community is coming together. It's been an honor to be with them, and it's been great to be with you this morning. All right. The uh, director of National Con Drug Control Policy, the drug czar, uh, James Carroll, thank you for being here. We'll be back in two minutes with political analysis. As we told you earlier, Governor Walls signed a bipartisan piece of legislation that will protect elderly people in assisted living centers. It took a couple of years for the legislation to pass, but the governor says it's an example of government at its best. By putting this piece of legislation together, each and every one of you are here who are listening. This is the way all of us hoped when we were learning about government in grade school that it really worked. That was Governor Tim Walls at the bill signing for that elder abuse protection law. Joining me now for political analysis, Andy Brem, who has not been with us for a while. He's been on the road quite a bit. And Andrea Macros, thank you both uh, for being here. Uh, you know, we hear so much during the legislative session, and I know I cover the divisiveness as much as anybody, but there's actually things that do get done, and this elder abuse protection uh, legislation is an example of how Republicans and Democrats can come together. Absolutely it is. And I think it's a good reminder, too, that people on both sides of the aisle uh, that are serving us in St. Paul are doing it with good intentions. These people want to make the state better, and we can have disagreements. But it's, it's great to see victories like this and, and Republicans and Democrats working together. And, Andrea, it's also an example of how people, I was at that elder abuse uh, conference the other day, and there's all of these people, all of these stories you hear about what has happened to their loved ones when they've been in assisted living care. And, again, mm -hmm. most of them do a great job, but there's always going to be, like in any profession, some bad apples. And the stories that you hear mm -hmm. are heartbreaking, but they had a problem, they took it to lawmakers, and they got something done. You know, there's often so much going on at the Capitol that it's hard to track all the hearings and all the people who are coming to make their voices heard. But the fact is, it matters. It matters to go to the Capitol and to tell your story uh, and to have legislators actually hear firsthand what's going on out in their districts and across the state. And this is an example of where that made a difference. And it's just one example. We have another one also that we told you about a few minutes ago. And as you just heard from the drug czar, uh, addressing the opioid crisis. Now, there are questions, even from the author of the bill, about whether 
it's going to be enough, but at least they're trying to do something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both sides recognize that this is an enormous crisis, that addiction is an extremely serious disease and something um, that we need to do a better job of battling. So, again, I mean, you know, saving lives, what better bipartisan cause? And it's amazing how it touches so many people, not just the addicts themselves, but their families, the children, and those are some heartbreaking stories, too. This weekend, we mark what would have been Prince's birthday, and that's another case of this touches people from all walks of life. Um, I think we've seen in the news recently how this really has reached epic proportions and can't go unaddressed. So while this is the first of many steps that the legislature is going to take, it's good that they took that first important step. Now, of course, sometimes it is messy getting to the final product, and we do have an example of in the middle of the night when they're writing the opioid legislation, something got missed, including the amount of money to pay for naloxone. Let's listen to what Senator Eaton had to say. It was supposed to be 200000 a year, but somehow it got messed up in the reviser's office. They thought it was a biennium, so it's 100000 a year. We'll try and fix that next session, or the council can fix it. As we say in TV, we'll fix that in post-production. <laughs> uh, just 30 seconds left. Another issue that is very interesting the presidential primaries in 2020, uh, that data, if you go vote in the Republican or Democratic primary, that information is going to be given to the political parties. Good idea or a bad idea? I think it's a bad idea. I mean, people should be able to vote and keep that confidential. Uh, you know, Minnesota is a little different than other states where we don't have party registration, so this is going to mark a major change for Minnesota voters. And I'll be doing a story on that with the Secretary of State. Uh, Steve Simon will have more on that on next week's show. But uh, Andrea and Andy, thanks for being here. Thank I appreciate you. it. Coming up, celebrating the impact of adaptive sports in Minnesota. And as I got older, my love of sports transformed into a passion for endurance sports. However, it was also around this time that my genetic disorder started to impact more areas of my life, making sports a lot more painful to participate in. Absolutely a proud dad moment for me. That is my daughter, Abby Hauser, talking about how the adaptive sports program at Courage Kenny Rehabilitation Institute has impacted her life. Abby has a, a rare disease that impacts her joints and muscles. And I was the MC for this week's celebration of Courage Luncheon at Target Field, raising a lot of money for adaptive sports programs at Courage Kenny. And I'm so proud of my daughter's courage. And thanks to everybody who turned out for that event. We'd like to see what you have to say about that issue. Send us your feedback and let us know what issues you'd like to see on the show. Or if you want to see more of my daughter, just write to issue at KSTP.com. You can also listen to episodes of that issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links posted at KSTP.com. And that is all the time we have for now. We hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of Ad Issue.